This is Cinema Degeneration. If I may put forward a slice of personal philosophy, I feel that man has ruled this world as a stumbling, demented child king long enough. And as his empire crumbles, my precious black widow shall rise as his most fitting successor. I'm Frederick Lawrence. I've rented the house on Haunted Hill tonight so that my wife can give a party. A haunted house party. She's so amusing. There'll be food and drink and ghosts. And perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. Can you look around this world and believe in the goodness of a god who rules it? Famine, pestilence, war, disease, and death. They rule this world. The mark of Satan is upon them. They must hang. And now for you, Bartholomew, my beloved brother, while you are still alive, my ultimate device of torture. Now he must die. The Dr. Death that we created, he must die. I am not afraid. There is always room for more in the coffin of time. The instinct is alive within me. And you, Dr. Death, are you afraid? No. No, you're going home. Come. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Nine eternities in doom. The tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. Alrighty, folks, welcome once again to Cinema Degeneration's Vincent Price Appreciation Month. And we got a roundtable discussion we're going to give to you this evening, or this afternoon, I should say. Uh, my good buddies over here at the, the Last Call at Torchy's Gang, Lee Russell and Gary Hill, are joining me. How are we doing, guys? Excellent. Thanks for having us. Uh, feeling fine, man. Thanks for having us. Like, like he said, what, what, what Lee said, you know. Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> we're doing better than somebody that's been prematurely buried, right? Well, the, depends on how the coffin looks from the inside, I guess. <laughs> she did a fancy, you know, look at my face coffin, so. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. yes, she did. She, she she looked very radiant for a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> that came out sounded a lot dirtier than I intended it, but hell, we're going with it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, it, it is a theme in the movie. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie filled with uh, I, themes. I thought it was Barbara Steele for a second. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was going to say, it's a movie filled with uh, tonal themes of uh, bestiality, necrophilia, you know, all good, wholesome family value type shit. Yeah, yeah. But it yeah, did look I, like Barbara Steele, didn't it? Yes, that was my comment, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, let's, you know, we do things a little different here uh, at Cinema Degeneration, and we do at last Call of Torches, but I'll try to keep up the basic tonal theme of how we do things as a roundtable discussion. Usually we do a deep dive discussion, but with three people, I think that might be a little difficult. So we'll kind of do a hits and highlights of this. Uh, first, of all, first off, um, we'll get the quick IMDb synopsis which is as follows. Tumalai Jella, 1964. A man's obsession with his dead wife drives a wedge between him and his new bride. And I feel like that is about as fucking vague as you can get. They're, well, they're not giving anything away because it's, it's really not so much about the obsession. It's about her hold on reality and just saying, you know, this bitch is just saying, I'm not going to die. <laughs> and, and you're not going to marry anybody else besides me. I will come back in the form of even a, a fucking cat if I have to. And mm-hmm. you're, you're mine. Now, uh, we'll just go in, in a row here and, and talk about our first impressions of this movie. I know Lee and I, we were talking a bit uh, off the air here, so we'll start with you. You said that you hadn't watched this in 20 years. What was your impression of Tuma Ligella after 20 years? Uh, it was it plays way better than I remember it. Like I, I watched it on TV like 20 plus years ago when it, uh, it ran on a, uh, channel called space, the imagination station, which was basically the Canadian ripoff of the sci-fi network, uh, in the U S. Um, and so you go figure it's a sci-fi channel, but they're playing horror movies. Um, (laughs) but, uh, yeah, I I was aware of these. Like they played a, a few of these. I don't think they played all of them back in the day on that channel, but they played a few of these uh, P- uh, Corman Poe cycle uh, films. And at the time, I, I definitely remember thinking it was the lesser of the ones I had seen because it it is definitely a slower film than the rest of them. It's not as over the top and. Um, it's got a much more restrained performance from Vincent Price compared to the other uh, additions to the cycle. Um, but now revisiting it 20 plus years on, I think I appreciate and like this one a lot more than the rest of the films in the uh, series. Uh, I think it plays a lot better and uh, we'll get into details as we sort of talk about it. But um, I uh, really love this. I, I think it's, Probably, honestly, my favorite of the uh, Corman Poe films. And Gary, what, what did you think upon this reviewing? And had you seen it in recent years? No, this is this is the first time watch for me. Actually, I just um, oh, when you gave us the list, I I, I heard Corman talk about his Poe adaptations, and this one happens to be his favorite, and also directed by him. So I said, let's pick this one and see which one. You know what? Why it's his favorite, and am I gonna like it or not? And I've heard good things about it. And um, in the in the first time viewing, I, I usually films like this that are that, that it's involved, but it's not involved because you know we'll get into the, the details of it. But I, I I would I would tune out, but I I watch this at work while I was working, and I was engaged while I was working. So there's a Usually, I only watch movies at work that that I could be slightly engaged with and like follow it, what whistling while I'm working, if you will. <laughs> so, um, it was it was good, you know, good atmosphere, you know. Vincent Price is over the top as usual, probably with the longest hair I've ever seen him have in a film. And um, yeah, like besides uh, Witchfinder General is probably yeah. the longest hair probably ever with. Him. Oh yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> but all in all, um. I had a good time with it, and I, I I would watch it again. Yes, 
Yeah, I, I remember seeing this uh, back in the day on, uh, I think it might have been Channel 32 or something like that. It might have been the old uh, Sven Gulli show back in the day oh, in, the, yeah. in the early 80s. And they would play a lot of these old Corman and, and Poe adaptations. And, you know, back then, I don't think I had as much of an appreciation for the Poe stuff as I did as I got to be, you know, a teenager and in my 20s and so on and so on. But, you know, there are more sophisticated lot of movies than your normal 80s slashers, which I was really into back then and still am into now. But it's like it, it is the more refined performance and refined movie uh, out of co- both Corman and Price. You know, it's uh, it it broadened in scope, you know, than the previous Poe adaptations. Hell, there was just a lot more outdoors, but, you know, it's still confined within a castle for most of the film. But it does mm-hmm. feel like. Pit and the Pendulum and Mask of the Red Death and a couple others that were just mostly confined to that one location. Yeah. Eh. I mean, we were talking about how um, for this film being the last in the sort of post cycle that Corman did, uh, the budget is bigger than all the other ones. And they allowed them to do some actual on location shots in the outdoors. And it, it's decidedly different than all the other Poe films both for that and um I think just just the fact that the cinematography is enhanced by the fact that they have the outside shots um and also that this is a gothic horror story but it's almost shot entirely in daylight like there's only a couple outside shots that are in night everything else is uh, a stark daylight, which is a real contrast to the previous ones where it was always like, you know, molding graveyards at night with tons of fog. And, uh, and and then they were all, and then that, at that, they were all sets and they were all obviously sets. So, you know, there, there was a suspension of disbelief you had to sort of, uh, employ in those older films that you don't have to in this one. Well, I mean, they even filmed uh, partially at Stonehenge in the, the Castle mm-hmm. Acre Priory yep. in uh, Norfolk, in England, and Wiltshire, England. So they were, uh, you know, on location. They weren't in the States, and I had actually read that Corman gave up his usual producer credit in order to get some uh, some some English money yeah. and, and into <laughs> the project, you know, which, I, you know, it, it, it worked. It, it came across on the screen. Now, uh I, I I'm not sure where this falls uh, with you guys in the pantheon of uh, Corman Poe Price adaptations. This is probably my second favorite. The only thing that takes it down a notch for me is I can't, even though that cat is one hell of a bastard and is a little shit, I, I can't abide by animal cruelty in a movie. So it does take down my enjoyment. I mean, just a slight notch, you know. I I realize mm. it's not real. <laughs> so my favorite is Mask of the Red Death. But this ranks a very close second. It, it Performance-wise, is one of the more, you know, Vincent Price still hams it up a little bit, but at the same time, you know, is a more refined performance than him, where he's not so gleefully over the top as he is in, like, Pit and the Pendulum or uh, Mask of the Red Death. Uh, yeah, he never, um, like, like he's he's got a few lines here and there where he, you know, he has that sort of trademark kind of, snarky campy kind of uh sort of play on his on his words and stuff but most of his performance is him being this fucking sad sack who has lost his wife and is in like deep depression until he you know starts up this love affair with the uh, rowena character who is also played by elizabeth shepherd who's doing like the the Lagia and Ro- rowena uh double double role here basically yeah. just to just to make even thing things more like uncanny and doppelgangy and uh uh and just weird like this this film for me like i said uh revisiting it i've come to f- consider this my favorite of the of the uh corman poe films just because i think it's honestly as far as the stuff corman has directed probably his best film um it's definitely the one that's the closest to poe's own themes like the yes. previous the previous films sometimes you they'd get like a they'd say this oh this is a Edgar Allan Poe film but it only in name like very so loosely adapted that it's almost laughable but here like this is so close to uh the actual story Ligia which is a very short story 
and they have to expand upon it a lot here. And they got Robert town doing the screenplay and he does a great job with it. Like uh, if people aren't familiar with the other sort of stuff, Robert town has done, like uh, he did Chinatown and the sequel to two Jakes. Uh, he wrote on the last detail, uh, even the mission of first two mission impossible films. And then in the nineties, um, oh, wow. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. Yeah. He, if you look at his list of credits, He's got a lot of notable ones that are under his name. And then there's a ton where he wrote and is uncredited on, like he's uncredited on the Godfather, for instance, and a couple other notable things. But uh, yeah, a, a real talent here. Who's like actually trying to connect the actual Poe text and put it on screen in some way, which is uh, a monumental feat because there's not a lot in the actual story. Legia. It, it's pretty short and pretty simple. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only like, what, 12 pages, if that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, most of the post stories were very short to try to make an hour and a half, uh, two-hour feature film out of them were, was, you know, pretty difficult uh, task, I must say. I'm a writer myself, and I don't know that I'd want to even try to t- tackle something that monumental. Yeah. Now, I got to ask folks to get uh, just to get off the subject of, of Tuma Lijea for just one moment. Do you fellas have a favorite Vincent Price movie? Since this is Vincent Price month, I want to get this one out of the way before we get too deep into the movie. I guess, Gary, we'll start with you. Oh, it's, you know, it, I, I got to go to Criteria. I think I could turn on, like, no matter how I feel and really enjoy myself. And that would have been my second choice to do for this show, which has been Comedy of Terrors. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's so funny, and the physical comedy's there. If you guys haven't seen it, it's got Boris Karloff, Peter Laurie, and Vincent Price in it. So, um, and, and Rhubarb the Cat, he gets credit. So <laughs> check, check it out, y'all. It's, it's a lot of fun. You know. Yeah, I love Comedy of Terrors. It's a good one. What about you, Lee? Um, it's probably a toss-up between uh, Witchfinder General and... Um, uh, theater of blood um i think i think price was really at his sort of height in his uh in his sort of waning aip years like he's also known for doing a lot of campy stuff and then you, you so you get to like the theater of blood thing where he's he's doing a ton of different things like it's very it, it's it's uh, based on a you know a guy who's in the theater and uh, so it plays to his strengths of being overly theatric uh, uh, as he's doing these roles and these different characters to, you know, get his revenge on all these critics that uh, laughed at his performances and, and ruined his career. Um, but, yeah, that, that one's great. And then you got like the direct opposite of his campy theater of blood stuff uh, with Witchfinder General, where he is playing it so straight and so villainous and... Like most people, if they have never seen like Witchfinder General, once they get into it, they're like, Jesus, this is uh, <laughs> this is this kind of a hard bastard. <laughs> yeah. And this is a hardcore movie for when it was made. You know, like it, it, it's a it's a very surprising uh, turn for for Price, actually, if you go into that only knowing his more sort of tongue in cheek kind of roles. So, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of where I'd, I'd sit at. Like, I, I pretty much like everything Vincent Price. Like I have. I haven't seen a movie in him that that he's been in that I haven't at least enjoyed him in it. If even if the film itself doesn't really uh, live up to his performances, but he always brings it. Like I've never seen he's he's just like uh, Peter Cushing uh, and Christopher Lee, and that he never really dogs it. Like he, he there's always an air of dignity and professionalism in everything he does. So. I'd, I'd agree with that because he's the consummate professional, you know, he shows up, you know, yeah, it might be a job, but he's going to do his job damn well. Mm-hmm. And I think my favorite with his, I've already iterated this on several other episodes of this show, so I'll keep it brief. Uh, but is the last AIP movie that he did was Madhouse. Yeah, Madhouse I is great. Absolutely love Madhouse. I've often said, if given the power of being a, a filmmaker, if I had a budget, I would remake Madhouse. Mm-hmm. I have no idea who the hell I would cast in Price's role because those are big shoes to fill. But yeah, yeah, wow. Madhouse. I, I I love Madhouse for the, the whole movie within a movie kind of element, which is a favorite sub you know sub trope sub genre of mine. Mm-hmm. And plus, it's just got you know Robert Corey. Little yep. kind of pseudo cameos by Basil Rathbone and, and Boris Karloff. I think how they work 
those that footage in and being kind of you know in the timeline of you know the Doctor Death character of working in, in those movies and Robert Corey, you know, just good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, especially considering Robert Corey and and Price were feuding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember a quote specifically on the set of Doctor Fibes uh, Rises Again when he's uh, when Corey was singing and and uh, Price had walked in on him, and I believe you know Corey said something to the effect, oh, "I bet you didn't know I could sing, did you?" To which Price allegedly replied with, "Well, I know you couldn't fucking act," <laughs> <laughs> which is just uh, what what I give what I would have given to being a fly on that cloud to hear that man say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you, my introduction to Vincent Price was, um, if you ever, uh, like, a, like a pseudo, they called it the Horror Hall of Fame, but it wasn't like a award show, it was like a, like a retrospective of films that I should have seen at like 10 years old, but I didn't, so it was really uh, helpful as a child, and introduced me to Forrest J. Ackerman and Vincent Price in the same day, so Ooh, there's that. Nice. Uh, talk about two legends, man. But yeah, let's get get into at least for a, a quick moment here uh, a dissection of the Tomb of Malaysia. It's you know it's basically again it's almost a, a continuation a little bit of the the pit and the pendulum theme. It's a man pining away after his his I'm using air quotes here that you cannot see his dead wife. It's always mm-hmm. about a, about a wife being buried prematurely, and I think that you know it's. Uh, says something you know the that he was always somebody that was obsessing over somebody that had died in this case his wife being an atheist saying that she would never uh, die and the quote on her grave on her tombstone says nor lie in death forever basically saying i ain't never gonna leave mm-hmm. and literally said the, that her final words to him had been i will always be your wife your only wife and is this uh the obsession with the uh, the it's, well the the apotheosis of, of Poe that which is just the you know pining away after a dead loved one and you know of course we got you know hints of bestiality and mm-hmm. hints of necrophilia and I just wonder wonder what you guys thought and I'll pose it to either one of you to go first of what you thought of the overall uh, thematic qualities of this movie the the, the meat and potatoes of it uh, do you want to go first Gary or yeah I'll go first I guess um. Yeah, I thought it was really wild because you had the opening to to where they're they're having Lygia's funeral of, of sorts because there's an argument there where she can't be buried on consecrated ground because she's a pagan, obviously, or something going on there because or she, she's not a Christian, so he's gonna bury her anyway. So so the cat, you know, the cat of all cats, jumps on the grave, her eyes open, and there's obviously what you find out later is some kind of transference of power there and. I like that aspect of it because as a cat owner, as a female cat owner, you know, they're very possessive. And the fact that this cat's possessed by his his wife, that's not going to go away. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, speaking of possessive cats, mine's trying to claw, claw my leg right now. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Possessive um, things. Anyway, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, you're, you're okay. Uh, I love that aspect of the film, that this cat is, is, is possessed by his, his dead wife. And it gets really mad when he picks a a woman because it's commented on the movie that, you know, do we look alike? Well, you're the exact same person, so of course you look alike. And <laughs> <laughs> so the fact that he picked one look just like her, you know, and made the cat more possessive and clawy and crazy. And I I love all this. It's like a weird. It's like a weird love triangle in, in a way. It's like. I'm dead, but I'm I'm not dead, and I will I will claw the fuck out of this bitch and you, you know, if you keep <laughs> messing around. And he doesn't learn. I think he's very much aware the whole time that this cat is is something wrong with this cat, and and he still per- pursues her, you know, like, like he should. And um, one thing I wasn't did they explain why he's um like. Afraid of the light or has problems with the light in the movie? You know, um, I don't. I don't think they did. Did they? No, they, they explained that he had an affliction to sunlight. Yeah, there. It, it's it's more a uh, typical Poe, and in, in some ways, a, a kind of a typical 
uh, gothic horror kind of trope where a character is afflicted with certain things, you know, like here it's a sensory overload almost in a way. Like you sort of see that theme pop up a couple times in the film, like for, for price, he's got, you know, he's got to wear the badass steampunk sunglasses because, uh, he has a sensitivity to light. And I mean, later on you get that sequence uh, with Rowena in the clock tower where at, at one point the bells start ringing and it's just what way too much, you know, like it, it, there, there seems to be, seems to be hinting at certain things. Like, I, I feel like they just couldn't get everything into the script that oh, they maybe, want, that they maybe wanted to, but it, it definitely hints at different ideas and throws them in there. And I think also purpose purposely it's written kind of open-ended in a, in a way where you can kind of, uh, come to your own conclusions and what's really going on. Like you can, there's enough evidence for a purely supernatural explanation for what's going on. But then there's also allusions to that. Maybe there's something mentally really wrong with Vincent Price's character, or that there might be some deep seated addiction problems somewhere. Although that doesn't come out as strong because that's more in the text of the original uh, story where you have an unreliable narrator who is uh, abusing opium. And yeah. so it's not clear whether uh, his, his uh, undead, you know, his wife, his dead wife is coming back and manifesting in his current wife, who is now sick and dying as well in the original text. I, I, I do like that the fact that they don't over, over explain a lot of stuff, like the fact that she's in, um she's in all this Egyptian stuff and, I'm sure she believes heavily in reincarnation. If not, if not, if she didn't cast some kind of spell or something to say, you know what, I'm dying. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna annoy this guy, and in, in the afterlife, <laughs> l- l- let me set this cat thing up. You know, mm-hmm. they don't over-explain all that, but you you get it from like one flash of of, of a screenshot of her opening her eyes, and you know something happens there. But I, I yeah. Just the, the the jealousy there, and you know, the, the, as the story pro- progresses, he he becomes. I'd say the more and more happy he becomes with with Rowena, the more and more this cat, you know, will play. And I I love that aspect of the story, and and and, it's, and it leaves a pretty satisfying end to where the point of, you know, when everything's good going going down, that he'll never escape. <laughs> Mm-hmm. His lovely, you know, reincarnated wife, and uh, it's um, it's pretty great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kick it to Lee though. Uh, yeah. Um, so we we sort of touched on whether you know what's really going on, and uh, so you know, leave that up for everybody individually who watches it. Like, do you accept the supernatural thing? I tend to accept the supernatural stuff. I think that's very much in this. Um, very a very common trope of gothic fiction around the period that Poe was writing is the ideas of uh, you could stay alive if you willed it strong enough. You know, it sort of sort of touches into magic and witchcraft and stuff as well, but like just the idea that if your will was strong enough, you could somehow come back from the dead or just not totally die. And yeah, cheat death some, somehow, right? Yeah. yeah. And also there's another way that was tied in through hypnotism. There is a, I, for, I should have looked this up. I forgot the name of the story, but, and I, I believe it. Oh, I believe it is a Poe story too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where the character uh, hypnotizes himself to keep himself alive, basically. And, and, um, oh man, I should have looked this up, but uh I, I, I would suggest people, you know, search this out. It shouldn't be too hard to find, but fucking uh, these ideas of like mesmerism and controlling wills and like even like, you know, training yourself of hypnotism to forget and remember different things and to like strengthen your will. Um, all those sort of ideas are kind of thrown into this as this whole big hodgepodge of things. So, you know, there, there's a point where uh, Price's character uses uh, hypnotism on Rowena and it allows briefly for, uh, Lygia to possess her body. And, uh, like all that stuff is very, very creepy 
and uncanny and it fits right into gothic fiction and it's just beautifully beautifully done like it it doesn't feel overly confusing or anything it's just like really creepy and it's like oh shit that just happened um so I kind of feel like they almost used the the hypnotic you know suggestion and whatnot that you know the to kind of as a as a gateway to the supernatural part to yeah. like to open your mind and be like, yeah, th- this could be happening. I, I feel like it's almost the, the hypnotic stuff is almost like a, a red herring, so to speak. Yeah. Um, although, you know, they also kind of like hint that somehow Lygia is hypnotized uh, Price's character, uh, Vernon fell and that some of his actions that he takes are not all quite his own. Um, so, maybe she's orchestrating things from beyond the grave in order to come back. And she needs kind of, uh, Price's help to do it. Yeah. Like towards the end of the movie, you know, where they, they decide to go exhume the body and they find that it's a wax dummy and they, 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 somebody had to get her out of the grave and she didn't let herself out, obviously. So, and you know, toward, towards the, the, I said like the third act of the movie, you know, he became yeah. more and more unhinged, mm-hmm. like he was being possessed by somebody, and it could have been it could have been uh, Lygia there telling him, "Hey, this is how this is going to happen. I'll go dig up my body so I can transfer this. So I can get the fuck out of this cat and go into uh, your, your your special lady that you chose over <laughs> you know, your wife. <laughs> yeah. that, that looks like me with a red wig on. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I will just briefly mention. Yeah, I was right. It was a Poe story. The facts in the case of M. Valdemar. Uh, that that was a short story he published in 1845, and it involves uh, hypnotism, uh, basically uh, sustaining a a life that otherwise, you know, sustaining a person who otherwise would have died. Now, the the one thing that I've got to mention here is is a scene that just gets to me is when Christopher shows up played by John Westbrook, who was the one that, you know, Rowena was originally betrothed to, you know, mm-hmm. engaged, engaged to when he just shows up and starts uh, questioning Kenrick. And he's just like, you know, berating him, you know, treating the help uh, essentially like 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag. He's mm-hmm. like, no, you're going to tell me what's going on. Where is he? Oh, well, he's, you know, He's working in the study, and he's like, well, take me to him. Well, he's not there, and he's like, oh, you, you know, and he kind of gives him the whole, uh, you either you can't tell me or you won't tell me. Yeah. And he's got some brass balls, though, when he goes, he's like, well, we're digging uh, Rowena, not Rowena, uh, uh, Lygia up. We're going to dig her up, and then he smashes the, the, the uh, what the hell is it, the, the lantern through it. And when he suspects that it's not a real body, it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, let's just set this shit on fire and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> it it takes some brass balls. It, that was the biggest kind of. I, I always considered there to be at least one "what the fuck" moment in a movie, and that's it. That's well, it in this movie for me. Yeah, there there are some like there's some it's subtle and not so subtle like sort of taboos being like flirted with here, right? And then things like desecrating graves and shit like that, and graphically so in this case. Um, but. I, I kind of find it funny. It's like you're supposed to like side with uh, the with him and trying to get his his lady back and shit like that. And it's like, no, they're all kind of rich assholes who are into fox hunting. So I'm like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not. I'm, I'm actually kind of siding with Lygia a lot more here. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, it, it's very questionable on which side the, the bench you're on of who the real villain is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Well, even her husband at the beginning of the film, during your funeral, he seemed like he was real cocky. Like, yeah, the bitch is gone. Now I mm-hmm. can go get some other tales someplace else, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then what about when we're, well, Rowena talking about what the fuck moments when he's burden fellows already explained to her that he has an aversion to the s- sunlight and it affects his eyes real bad. She peels his glasses right off. Yeah. yeah. These, all these people, men and women alike are all very rich uppity assholes. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the scene where he smashes the lantern through the glass though, he didn't know yeah. the body was wax. He's like, you know what? Fuck burn this bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I meant. That's the biggest, what the fuck moment of all is just like, how would he have felt like I've been like, Oh, Oh, she's like, really dead uh, oh i i think i fucked up i better go yeah it's 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 kind of weird though it's like so you you look you look through the little porthole on on her uh portcullis or whatever on her tomb 
on her cat on her coffin and it's like she looks very well preserved for having been in the ground for however long now she should have been a couple years at least yeah so it's like okay there's something up here you can kind of like give him that right it's like okay i suspect that's a fake body in there i'm gonna i'm gonna prove it might as well take the shot you know the chances are i'm right um but when you get back to the end of the film where you discover that price has kept the body all along and has been fucking the body uh still pretty well preserved <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on there so like the, it, it sort of leads to the idea that maybe some of her willpower is like sustaining her corpse at the very least yeah. in some way you know is this a cuckold situation? Is the cat watching as he's banging this corpse? The, 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 <laughs> I, I think that cat was always watching. Yeah, I think it's a kind of a self-cuckold thing. It's like, because, you you know, it's suggested that Lygia's spirit is in the cat guiding, sort of guiding uh, Price's actions to some degree. Uh, but at the same time, it feels like it's all kind of leading up to her eventually getting either a new body or restoring that body totally it, it's, it's very weird it, it and the you know the fact that rowena looks just like legia except for with different color hair like it, it just gets into weird resurrection and reincarnation things and doubles and and that kind of stuff it, it's very it's very much left not explained and i think it's all the better for it she looks very well preserved. I think that was part of the Egyptian hoodoo she was into. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah, I didn't definitely. even think about that. You didn't know. even think about that. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Now, I think my favorite sequence, and I'm not sure which uh, sequence is your favorite, but that dream sequence where they used a, a process to do kind of fake slow motion. Yeah. Where they had all the actors just moving super slow in a kind of weird ethereal kind of ghost-like sort of way. I think it's super effective really really effective beautiful to look at and why that's not you know utilized more often or at least you know back in that day wasn't utilized more often i don't know why but i, th- I thought that was a beautiful sequence yeah it's excellent um i think it's a tie between that and honestly just the finale like i the, the one thing you could always say about these movies even if, if you found them a bit slow the endings always sort of go it with a bang or in this case you know the whole house coming down in in flames, like very, uh, very much the same thing with house of usher and, and, uh, the other ones, it's, it's always like, it seems to end with the set being destroyed somehow by real fire or whatever, you know, or the walls crumbling. Um, and it, it doesn't, uh, doesn't let you down in, in, in the finale of the sort of Poe series that Corman did. It's like, he, he goes out, it's like, well, shit, we're going to destroy the sets. We're just going to, we're going to get rid of it all. We created these beautiful things and now we're just going to burn it all down. I think that mm-hmm. started like with, you know, I'm sure it might have happened beforehand, but like with the original Frankenstein, you know, it's like, let's destroy the castle. And that just became a motif. Once the castle's destroyed, that roll end credits. <laughs> One thing I, th- I thought was very odd, I'm not sure if you guys ca- caught this though. Uh, t- to me, uh, Vincent Price is insanely absent. For the last act of this movie you know for a good mm. like after about the first hour he's absent for like the next 20 minutes with him being you know the lead and the star of it i just felt like that was an odd choice for them to make to you know they concentrated on the the the, the christopher character that, that john westbrook plays you know a lot more and like they just i wonder if he had that weekend off you know or something you know but it was this kind of a strange aesthetic for them to uh take price out of the, out of the action for the last, you know, for at least 20 out of the last 30 minutes. I feel like they, I think, I, f- I feel like, you know, it, it might've been on purpose to do it that way, just to make sure that there's more doubt as to whether this is all happening in, in uh, price's mind, or if, it, if, you know, a lot of the shit is actually happening. Like you get some outside perspectives, you get Rowena's perspective, you get the, uh, uh, the uh, Christopher uh, Goff character, uh, you get his perspective um, as they're, you know, reacting to all this weird shit that seems to be going down. So uh, I, I think maybe it was purposely done as, you know, to not necessarily make it so obvious that, oh, no, this is all in Vincent Price's mind or whatever the fuck, you know, kind of thing. But I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it, not. I think it moves a plot because they're setting up the reveal at that point that, that mm. 
of all the stuff we described that was going on and um the the whole dill jilted lover thing of, of Rowena and yeah, all this had to be you know, set up to, to to fill in time to say, hey, this this is what's really going on, which I love that, that it sprung on you, but it's not really sprung on you. Because, again, we have a lot of questions of what's going on right now. You got to fill in the blanks yourself, and um, which is fine. I, I hate, I, I says, I hate films that explain everything to you in, in, you know, 45 seconds of exposition. That's why I think that Psycho is a flawed movie mm-hmm. just because of that very end. Like, well, by the way, Norman's a transsexual and blah, 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 blah. I, I didn't need to know all that, you know? Yeah. Just let us, it's just like, you know, not explaining what, what's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It can be whatever anybody wants it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just because you're, you're right. Doesn't mean I'm wrong. So to speak. Well, yeah. I think we could start summing this up uh, here in a bit. Uh, anything you guys want to add uh, before we get into our final ratings, we do do a rating on this one uh, on a scale from one to ten, just as a pre-warning. I should have told you guys that. For Gary knows he's been on the show before, but I didn't warn you, Lee. But uh, you know, final thought th- thoughts on Tomb of Lygia. Uh I think it's wonderfully done. Uh, the extra budget shows, and it's all the better for it. I think it's a great performance from Price. Great performance from Elizabeth Shepard as well, uh, doing the dual roles here, and everybody else kind of holds up their end as well. Like, there's nobody dogging it here at all. Um, a lot of talent behind the camera and in front of the camera. And uh, again, like I said, I think this is the closest to, if not 100% close to the to the text, what Texter is in in Ly- the original Lygia story. Uh, it's the closest to picking up the themes and the moods and the ideas of, of Poe. Uh, it, it's very, very well done. Uh, it feels like Corman was like, you know what? I, I gotta do this kind of straight at, at one point. I, I, I gotta at least make one really great film <laughs> that's really connected to Poe. And he really does it here. Um, it's, it's fantastic. It, it's, uh, I think a lot of people sleep on this one. People dismiss it as the lesser of the uh, Poe films because it's the kind of the least well-known of out of all of them, as far as I can tell. Um, but I think that's wrong. I think uh, if you stick with it, the patience is rewarded because there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in this one. So I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10. Okay, good. 8 out of 10, Gary. Oh, all the stuff Lee said that the locations are great. You know the the actor the acting is great. Vincent Price is you know reserved while while still being Vincent Price, and I I, I kind of like it like that. And um 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 one of the best Corman films of all time that he directed, and I I, I will agree there. But um the, the Intruder, which is totally unrelated to this film. Was probably my favorite Corman film of all time, just because of the baldiness of it. And mm-hmm. if you want to watch Ace, uh, William Shatner role, and I don't mean that is is cheesy William Shatner, just him acting his ass off. Go watch yeah. The Intruder. You know. Um. Yeah, that's another underrated film that no nobody nobody ever talks about, hardly right. ever. Um. But all in all, I, I I I think it's pretty awesome and. Again, it was one of those like those gothic films that normally I I would I would tune out, but I, I was I t- tuned in the whole time, and uh, yeah, I'm with Lee with that eight out of ten. I'm I'm coming in the same as you guys. Uh, believe it or not, I wrote an eight at the top of my uh, notes here. We're coming in eight out of eight, eight out of three. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. but uh, yeah, it, it's one of my favorite of the Poe adaptations. Like I said, the, my first will probably be The Mask of the Red Death, but it's by a very, very narrow margin. I think, uh, you know, Corman went out with a bang on this one uh, on his Poe adaptations. And to think he would go on to do, like, I think he did St. Valentine's Day Massacre and Wild Angels, like, shortly after this. So he went from Poe adaptations to biker flicks it was just Mm. it was it was a weird transition from the mid to late 60s you know the tonal change of things just really went off in a different direction but yeah it's one of my favorite uh price 
performances because I think it's one of his most uh, subtle performances. You know, usually he he hams it up quite a bit, and he he still does that on occasion in here. But you know, he's really a a, a tortured character in, in this one, and much like his character in Last Man on Earth, just a guy filled with a you know existential dread. And I love it for it. You know, it was sad to kind of see the you know the the Poe flicks kind of come to an end. But you know, eight movies that's pretty good. It's pretty good for a kind of a pseudo franchise, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he 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 pretty much rang everything he was gonna, uh, you know, get out of it out of these. You know, he he got all the all the shocks and excitement, and at the same time, sort of dug into the themes as well a little bit here and there, and especially in this film. So, uh, you know, it was time to move on. He he saw the winds were changing, uh, and AIP saw the sort of same thing. It was like we need to get away from these gothic horrors because people aren't watching them as much. Like this was the one that didn't do as well as the rest in the, in the series. So, you know, Corman was always following the dollars, even though, you know, uh, he is, he is an artist and there is artistic uh, thought behind these things and desire to produce good art. But at the same time, uh, the dollar always spoke to Corman more. So it's like, (laughs) yeah, uh, we're going to, we're going to go out in these biker flicks and, you know, AIP is going to diversify and start doing more modern horror films and uh, Hammer is unfortunately not going to catch up until the mid '70s when it's too late. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, it was it was a, it's a bygone era, but you know at least we still have the flicks to kind of go back on and re- revisit, though. Yeah. Speak of the Intruder, the only film he ever made money on, and you know, mm. it's, it's probably one of his best films. You know, directed by him and, and written by Charles Beaumont, who was uh, if you know the Twilight Zone, uh, he wrote a lot of those episodes. So. You know it's going to be good. <laughs> he did, Wait, he you, did said, a, you said it was did, the only movie he didn't make money on? Or that's, that's what he said. That's what he said. Um, as of like the, the Corman's World documentary that he didn't yeah. make any money okay. on. Okay. Yeah, I think, he, I think he eventually broke even. That was about it. But it took like decades. <laughs> yeah. But it's really good. Y'all yeah, check it out. Yep. Well, that being said, uh, you guys got anything to plug you got coming up? This is going to you know, uh, drop in about three weeks, so anything you guys got uh, to plug? I know, Gary, you got Cinema Beef going on and uh, Two Drink Minimum, and you, Lee, you got They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. Yes. See, I had to give it its proper due, but any, <laughs> uh, any specials you got coming up? Let you go first, Gary. Uh, by the time you hear this... Um... Our first, um, well, our next episode should be our holiday hangover episode, which is going to include two films about criminals who, who become icons in, in, in like really weird ways. Uh, a Face in the Crowd, I'm, I'm going to show my hand early. It's, it's, it's a really great film starring Andy Griffith, and we're doing that with uh, Female Trouble, which is a film, a John Waters mm. film, which is really great too. But, um... I, I like to drop Don Davenport on people that haven't seen it before just to watch the reactions. <laughs> and uh and it's it's really great too, but for a whole different reasons, uh for an ex- exploitation reason, which is why uh a lot of us got into this game and that and um my my boys here uh ride with me every time on Last Call of Torchies, the regular episode and if you're not a Legion Patreon episode, you're not Patreon member. You're not listening to everything because you get a bonus episode with with every show. And um, we're gonna have uh, well, last time we had Jamie on Jamie Jamie Sammons for Deliverance and, and uh, Southern Comfort. And then the one after that, it just it just happens to happen. We're gonna have that one that plays Lee's promo so many times on this show as Lee claims mm-hmm. uh, Duncan McLeish on for 48 hours and. Uh, and my Patreon pick, uh, Demolition Man, to go with that. And um, Ooh, love me some Demolition Man. This is going to be fun. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's stuff too. You know, but I won't kick it all in. But all you can find, all the stuff you can find on the Cinnamon Beef Podcast uh, RSS feed, and uh, join the Facebook group, which is called uh, or what is it called? The the, the Butcher Shop, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he rebrands himself and now you can't remember what well, he uh, you know I'm, I'm, i've had about an hour of sleep so i had it i remember in the back of my brain but it's called the butcher shop uh where you could find all the information on all these shows so go check it out wait sleep what's that i've I never, know, right? <laughs> I never heard of the thing 
Uh, yeah, for me, um, just recently uh, uploaded our best and worst picks of uh, first-time watches for 2021, and that's a big uh, almost two-and-a-half-hour show. Uh, funny that uh, Gary mentions Female Trouble. That was like a first-time watch for me uh, last year, and that's high on my list. Uh, spoilers there. but um, And I think... Probably by the time this episode comes out, you'll if you go to uh, my feed, we'll probably have an episode on Turbo Kid. That seems to be the next one we're going to be doing. And we seem to be doing an episode every two weeks now uh, just because our schedule has been weird. So uh, uh, should be should be pretty much contemporary uh, release with uh, this this episode of your podcast, Cameron. So, uh, yeah, check that out at TMBDOS dot podbean.com if you want to find my stuff all right all right well boys thank you very much for coming on i know we just recorded here just recently so i appreciate you giving me an hour or two out of your time i know you both had the kind of a, the days off but you know sometimes uh it's, it's hard to squeeze uh, those things in so i very much appreciate you taking the time to do vincent price appreciation month oh thanks for having uh me man uh gonna have to get you on uh, my show very very soon yeah well, more more than happy to do it anytime and uh you know again you can hear us all on last call at torchies if you have not gotten enough of the sweet sounds of our sultry voices yeah <laughs> so that being said folks thank you once again for tuning in to cinema degenerations vincent price appreciation month Don't you speak? Or you? Or you? Pray speak. Or has the cat got your tongue?